The Start. On Demand. demand. Hey, it's Brett. It's the Wednesday edition of the podcast for The Start with Mackling, McGarry, and McNabb. And we are so pleased to have had the privilege and have the privilege of bringing to you a chat with Debbie Travis, international TV icon, best-selling author, speaker. She wears so many hats, and today she's wearing her author hat because she has a new book out called Design Your Next Chapter, How to Realize Your Dreams and Reinvent Your Life. She's going to be at McNally Robinson Wednesday night at 7 o'clock, hosted by Global's Shannon Coozes, but we got her for a half hour in studio, and what a delight to meet this extraordinary woman. We're also going to talk about Naming and shaming as it pertains to drinking and driving. Police in York are doing something year-round now that police in Winnipeg typically only do during the holidays, and that's release the names of suspected impaired drivers. So we're going to tell you that story, and then we're going to talk to a privacy lawyer about that and whether or not it's a good thing. Snow Misadventures told you the story yesterday about a boy in Colorado, nine-year-old, who got his town to make Snowball fights legal again after nearly a hundred years of being illegal. That got us thinking about some of the mishaps we had as kids regarding snow, or not necessarily as kids. Kelly Moore's got a funny story that I thought happened when he was a kid, but turns out it was not. Seattle is joining the North American Ice Hockey League! What are some of the names that are being kicked around? Some of them are really good. Some of them are really garbage. We'll go through a handful of those names. And a former Grand Chief spent 27 hours on a hunger strike in the Canadian Museum for Human Rights. We will tell you why. Our next guest, as described in the book, that I am holding in my hands is an international television icon, a best-selling author, a newspaper columnist, a sought-after public speaker, and the center of a small business empire. Her name is Debbie Travis, and the book is called Design Your Next Chapter, How to Realize Your Dreams and Reinvent Your Life. She will be at McNally Robinson tonight at 7 o'clock, and we have the privilege and pleasure of having her in studio with us right now. Debbie Travis, pleased to meet you. Thanks for coming to see us. Hello, hello, hello. Marvelous to, <laughs> to meet you. And please don't, sometimes this word has a connotation of age, but you are a pioneer in <laughs> oh, terms of... They wheeled me in here. <laughs> <laughs> they did not in any way... My mom loves you! Shut up! <laughs> <laughs> well, I did. And I, I think HGTV, the entire network, may exist based on what you started doing before anyone else. Is that a possibility? Without a doubt. I mean, when I started with the first show, The Painted House, it was the first... first decorating show in North America and there was nothing in those days and you know and people would go why would anybody watch the show about decorating I don't know <laughs> I just need to pay the bills um, but uh, yeah I think it, it, it was a pioneer and look at it now you know it's become a, a genre if you will I know why people do it now I'm curious what the reaction was then to that question why are people watching a decorating show what do you think it was that had people saying, I need someone else to sort of guide me through these things? Well, I think it was the beginning. It's a great question, actually. It was the beginning of the DIY era. And, um, you know, there was also the economy wasn't very good. And before that, um, 
when people decorated, they kind of did it when they got married and then they did it when the kids left home. And, you know, the furniture went into the basement and you maybe did the living room up and suddenly everything became affordable. And you didn't, you know, you went, I think in the old days, you went to the department store and you bought like a, a living room set, if you will, and you had it for 20 odd years. For, I bet people sitting there saying, I've had mine 60, you know, but um, it was a different era and suddenly it exploded. And, and I think it also gave people... With shows like mine, you know, you didn't have to be a proper artist. You didn't have to be able to draw a man's, you know, a pe- person's face, but you can t- take a sponge and double it all over your walls. <laughs> well, I think, like, I think back to that era, and there was beaver lumber. For yeah. those of you that remember, and in Winnipeg, we had something called Winnipeg Supply, and it was an imposing, they were imposing places to go. You you felt those were for contractors and for those that could do stuff professionally, Yeah, and then you kind of ushered in this era, this idea that- Yeah, you, you could do you your could own do plumbing. It, you, could do it, you could do it yourself, at least yeah. contemplate it. Yeah, it was huge, and then you had, you know, in the States, you had this old house. In fact, our mm-hmm. first network in America was PBS, and that was um, a joint venue it was, it was this old house for the guys and she can't say this today of course and 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 the painted house for the ladies and um yeah it was it exploded all over the world so i mean within months it was playing in 80 countries and and you know you'd get these strange emails well, if we had emails in those days in fact we used to get mail um predominantly from jail but you know i had <laughs> no don't laugh don't laugh hey they want to they want to decorate huge, that space too yes. they got a blank wall well i'm not sure if that's what they were doing <laughs> watching me in those overalls but um but i had a lot of fan mail from prison i'm very proud of it so when you I hope they're still in there. <laughs> so as you point out, pioneer in the DIY stuff. When you look at all of the people on YouTube now with their own DIY channels of all kinds of stuff. Yeah. Do you feel like maybe you were partly responsible for that sort of generation of entrepreneurs? Well, I think the you know the internet has has changed absolutely everything. I mean, we all scratch our head. How did we do anything without it? And I, I but I think the difference is YouTube is is great for something that where you. Oh my God, how do I do this? Whereas television was purely about entertainment. So with my shows, as they evolved, as we got into facelift and there were surprises and you know, I was constantly jumping out of plants and stuff, you tended to, you know, we'd send the woman away because she wanted the makeover. But men, men were so much more fun because they're, sorry, such so idiots, plonkers, you know, to work with. You know, you <laughs> try decorating with a guy and renovating his kitchen. It's funny television. So for me, it was never about, you know, the prettiest room. It was about how shocked I could make people, you know. Sure, we're going to paint it lime green and and marbleize the toilet seat. You'll love it. You're going to really like it because it was about ratings and having fun. And yes, people, but people didn't watch just because they wanted a DIY information. Yeah, they might end going, oh, I don't know what we've done so there. But they wanted to go, oh, she's not going to do it. Oh, no. <laughs> no. Are you admitting you did some things for shock value, not for increasing the value of one's home? Oh, I think we decreased the value. <laughs> I think there are people across this country still scraping sponge marks off you. Know? Oh, no, I, that's why I, lo- I moved back to Europe, you know, I'm wanted. You had to get out? <laughs> I had to get out of this country. Well, let's talk about that move back to Europe because... When we mentioned you were coming on this morning, I said, often we have guests like yourself. I find it so inspiring on the home front of what I'm going to do to change my house or redesign and all the rest. But this book is about redesigning 
More. Your next chapter, absolutely. It's not, it's not about the design design, it's about you. Yeah. Well, you know, I've never really been a proper designer. I don't do other people's homes, um, obviously, <laughs> the mess I make. But, um, you know, and I have grown this very large company. We have product lines, we have, you know, um, newspaper columns and, and writing. And, you know, there's a lot of stuff. Plus, we have a television company in Canada that produces a lot of... Now we do crime, so we do a lot of murder shows. So now in my offices, it's actually completely changed. We don't do much lifestyle. And it's more like instead of what color are we painting the walls or designing the cake, it's where did they find the head, <laughs> you know? <laughs> or there'll be a prosthetic on the desk of two bloody feet or something. Those prison so, letters are coming in handy maybe now, giving yeah, a few tips to things. Yeah, <laughs> but we're doing a lot of, a lot of uh, I would say, more male programming. Um, but with in, in my particular case, I... Um, I had this dream and I was getting to the stage of deja vu. And I do think when you've done something over 20 years, you start to think, I've been here before and you probably have. You know, it was the same old, same old. And I was truthfully getting rather bored of myself and and what I was doing. And it's not the fault of the people you're working with. It's, you know, in the next generation, it's you. And at the same time, we'd filmed across Italy quite a lot. And I'd really had this dream of one day maybe owning a little house. And then something happened and I was, it was quite funny. I was doing a, a speech in Vancouver in an old theater and there was about eight or 900 women and an interviewer on stage. And the interviewer said, what's next for Debbie Travis? And this kind of lie, I don't know where it came from. Said, <laughs> I said, well, I'm going to be taking women to my villa in Tuscany, you know, in Italy. And we're going to walk through the lavender fields. We're going to do yoga in the vineyards. We're going to have lunch in the olive groves and we're going to laugh and da, da, da. And I stopped speaking and it went so quiet. You could hear a pin drop. And I thought, oh, dear, I've bored them rigid. And then suddenly these arms shot up and this inhale that, only women know, you know, this gut, you know, scream, you know, and people take me, take me. <laughs> and then the next day I got emails from husbands saying, take her, take her. You know? <laughs> <laughs> and I did not have a villa in Italy. I'd completely made the whole thing up. So I uh, went to the area we liked and I rented a dusty old villa. Um, got the word out and uh, we were full that summer and it was such a success. I could have put these women in a in a tent. It didn't matter. It was the drinking and the, the laughing and telling stories. And did I mention the drinking? And, and anyway, a lot of stuff went on. And, and so we found a property um, very, very near and it took five years to renovate. And so we've been doing it ever since. And we now we do about 10 retreats a year. But these people, men and women, brought these incredible stories about their dreams, starting next chapters, um, and and then I started to get kind of attracted, like a, like you know when you buy a new car and you're like, oh, I like that one over there, it's in red. Well, I started to suddenly see all these stories about people around the world who had started next chapters. They'd gone from being a surgeon to being a singer. They'd gone from working for the bank for thirty years and then started their own making their own cookies, and and it was a whole different mindset. And I found it fascinating. We're going to continue our fascinating conversation with Debbie Travis after we have a look at your forecast. The name of the book is Design Your Next Chapter, How to Realize Your Dreams and Reinvent Your Life. She will be at McNally Robinson tonight at 7 o'clock, hosted by Global's own Shannon Cooses. More with her in a moment on The Start on CJOB. (laughs) 
right now we want to carry on our conversation with Debbie Travis, who is in studio with us. Her next book, Design Your Next Chapter, How to Realize Your Dreams and Reinvent Your Life. She will be at McNally Robinson at 7 o'clock tonight, hosted by Global's Shannon Cousins. And Debbie, what do you say to people who might say to you, well, you know, it's easy for you to follow a new dream and go get a villa in Tuscany because you're already successful, but... I can't really afford it, so what do I do? Uh, It's a great question, and I'm not saying everybody has to follow my dream, but I think everybody does have an idea, uh, a seed, you know, a a little dream tucked away. What if, you know, as you're sitting, you know, doing your boring job, you're thinking, one day I might, you know, follow my my passion. Um, And I think you have to plan, you have to plot. And I divided the book up into three sections, dream it, do it, live it. So the dream is, you know, the dream. The doing it is the leap, and, and that is what stops us. So it was very important for me to have as much research and as much tools, you know, as possible to help people get over this, um, you know, and, and to move on. And one of them is is really mindset. So, yeah, I went from you know, having this wonderful television career to suddenly standing, you know, Tuscany is lovely in July and August. In February, it's not so great. You know, and you're standing in the mud, you're all alone. I didn't speak the language. Um, your money's dripping down a hole um, month after month. You know, this big cha-ching. I don't know how you say cha-ching in Italian, but it was very loud. <laughs> um, and, and it's terrifying. It, for all of us to make that leap, it's terrifying. But what's interesting is the live it is the consequences And I interviewed over 300 people and not one of them said, I should never have done this. This destroyed my life. It broke me. Um, It was a waste of time. They all said, though, that no, they weren't necessarily living in paradise, but it took them down a particular road, you know, that things, it was never as expected. My my next chapter has not been as expected. Um, And... It's getting out there, and and if you get out there, then those different paths will open up. And you have to get through the fear. You have to get through the planning and the plotting and and make that all part of the the experience. You mentioned uh, something, a feeling that I think I can relate to. I know I've heard it from many of my friends that it's not about not liking the current role that they're in now. They might still like what they're doing. It's about looking down the road and thinking, am I really going to do this in this current form for the next 20, 30 years, but they have no, it's not about, they don't have a secondary passion. They just want to try something else. So exactly. what's, what's the advice for that person? Because it's some, a lot of people have three different interests and they might want to have been TV author, singer, exactly. but some people just are like, well, I really like what I do, but I also don't know if I can do, do this. It. So what, how do I take that leap without even knowing? Well, exactly. So I think, first of all, a lot of people have written to me saying, well, actually, I don't know what my passion is. I, I One woman actually wrote a couple of days ago and said, um, I think I... I don't dream anymore. I don't, I don't have any dreams. And I have the women who come to Italy, they often say, you know, vitality's dripped out of me like a, like a leaky tap. And I think life does that to us. Kids do it to us. Work does it to us, you know. Um, and, but you have to get it back. And today, if you fill out any of these forms, we're all going to be living into our 80s. And if you take early retirement at 50, that's 30 years. You might as well do something. So, for, you know, there's all these stories in there. Like one of my neighbours who was a, a, a surgeon for 25 years at McGill, top, top surgeon. And on her 50th birthday, she said, I'm going to sing. I said, that's nice. 
what do you mean? And she said, no, I'm, I'm going to do it full time. Doesn't mean she regretted all those years in medicine. It was just time. So she, what she did was, which was very clever, she said, you, you know, you make these decisions, then you have all this noise in your head and then you can't sleep. She said, I created a calendar where, okay, in three months time, I'm going to decide. I've got three months to work out how I do this. And then six months time, we're going to move because we're going to have to move house. I'm going to take the children out of school and... <laughs> put them into a crappier school so I could follow my passion, <laughs> as you do. Um, but she did it, and she's now playing. She moved to New Jersey. She's she's playing in all the libraries. She earns like 50 bucks a night, and she's a completely new person. She does not regret her life in medicine, but it's like, if I want to do this, I need to do it now. So I think you often find you reach this pinnacle. This You're at the end of your learning curve. And what's next for me? Well, you can find out what maybe your next chapter is tonight at McNally Robinson at 7 o'clock. The book is called Design Your Next Chapter, How to Realize Your Dreams and Reinvent Your Life. Debbie Travis is the author. She has been our guest for the last half hour. Debbie, thank you so much for visiting us. What a pleasure to meet you. It's been great. Thank you so much. And in our next segment, we're going to talk about snow fight misadventures from when we were a kid, inspired by the story of the nine-year-old Colorado boy who helped to fight make snow fights legal again in his city after a hundred years. <laughs> so I'm looking forward to telling you that story because I can still remember the seething anger from my grade six teacher, Monsieur Bilodeau. God, he was mad at us. So details on that. I love the way you still say your French teacher's names. Very good. Or or Sir Sir Bill, as we called him. Sir, I bet you he loved that. To his yeah. face or behind his back. I think I think some of us called him Sir Bill to his face. Oh, I like that. He was a jovial fellow. Had a great mustache. Yeah, he fit right in when uh, Festival du Voyageur kicked in. So uh, it probably hurt you the fact that you'd hurt his feelings and that he was so angry oh, with yeah. you. Right? Oh yeah, yeah. had an effect. Yeah, I still mm-hmm. remember him just standing in front of the class, just beside himself. It's just silent. You know, that shaking anger when you're so <laughs> mad you can't even speak? Yep, that was what we drew out of our teacher after he gave us a fun day. So details on that coming up. Uh, but we right now want to talk. We want to start with impaired driving. Yeah, the holiday season is upon us. And soon with it, holiday check stops. Last year, during its five-week program, the Winnipeg police stopped more than 5,000 vehicles and did about 100 roadside breath tests. When it was over, they had charged 38 people with various offenses and then released those names to the public. So that's common practice for the Winnipeg police this time of year. But now an Ontario police detachment is taking it one step further. In York Region, which is in the Toronto area, the police force there is not just posting the names of drivers charged with impaired driving during the holiday season. It says it's planning to do this year-round. But as Global's Catherine McDonald explains, critics argue people are being publicly shamed without a trial. And he says there's no evidence this kind of list even acts as a deterrent. This is the first list published by York Regional Police of the 13 men and three women charged this past weekend with impaired driving while under the influence of alcohol or drugs. The list, something YRP has been threatening to do for more than a year, 
is now a reality. Our chief is fed up and Chief Eric Jolliffe has come out uh, a couple times now in the last few weeks saying the numbers that we're seeing, which continue to rise, uh, of people that are driving while impaired, uh, it's got to stop and something's got to change. YRP says so far this year over 1,400 people have been charged with impaired driving, up from just over 1,200 last year at this time, and five people have been killed due to suspected impaired drivers. The decision to name suspects comes after yet another disappointing weekend for the police force, working towards a zero tolerance for drivers who are impaired. On Friday night after 10, police say a homeowner who lives on Joshua Court in Vaughan called police after noticing a suspicious car parked in his driveway for more than an hour. Police say as officers arrived, the suspect vehicle began driving off and he was pulled over. They say he smelled of alcohol and noticed a half full bottle of vodka in the center console. Police say he was taken to a division and placed under arrest. And while there, he blew four times the legal limit. The 32-year-old Toronto man is now not only facing a 90-day suspension while his case is before the courts, he's now also listed on York Region's very first list. This man applauds YRP for what they're doing. Now you as a neighbour know if you see him driving, you're supposed to call police. So you can help them in enforcing that 90-day suspension. Would you do that? Yes, I would, of course. It's obviously uh, he shouldn't be driving at all. They have brought forward no evidence, and there isn't any evidence, that there will be any deterrence involved in this. But the head of the Canadian Civil Liberties Association says publishing a list with names of accused impaired drivers is unconstitutional and says his group is considering a lawsuit against YRP. Well, people are going to lose jobs over this. People are going to get fired as soon as the mug ends up going on the internet. And you can say, well, they should be fired, but they haven't even had a trial yet. What do you think of this? I I feel like it, it would certainly be the thing that stops people from doing it again. I think there's a point to be made about does it work? Like, does it actually make a difference? Or are you just shaming someone for no reason? But what's the reason is just don't drink and drive. Yeah, so. but is there a proof that it doesn't work? Right, That no. it doesn't deter people? I suspect that it does. It might. What probably ends up happening is that it deters people from doing it again. But the, the thought, the threat of having your name published might not be enough of a deterrent to prevent someone from getting caught the first time. Does that make sense? It does. It does. But I think there are people who are, you know, it's that that rule with regard to theft, right? 50% of the people will never, ever steal anything. 25% of the people will, you know, and these are rough numbers, right? But there are people that will, no matter what system you put in place, will steal time, will steal paper clips, pens, and money from you, and 25 that will never, ever steal no matter what. So, And then there's those people who will take advantage of systems when there's opportunity. And those are the people you're after, the people that are going to think about it and go, what are the ramifications here outside of the fact that A, it's against the law, B, that it's dangerous. There's a lot of psychology involved in this. Everybody knows it's against the law. Everybody knows it's dangerous. So why do so many people still do it. Do we honestly believe that there were only 38 people who were drunk driving no. over the Christmas period last year? Uh, and Come I also, on. I also think the idea of, okay, well, you're innocent until proven guilty. But when it comes to something like drunk driving or impaired driving, there's a bit more. It's it's not a he said, she said game. It's a bit of that, but there's, there's a bit of science behind it. There's the technology you've blown over on the breathalyzer. So really, how often are those people going to court and having those charges tossed anyway they they probably were guilty like the higher percentages there versus potentially another crime when it's just someone says you did it and you say i didn't do it and there's no evidence to support otherwise i'd like to see i i think i'd like to see the list change to those that have been 
proven guilty, though, because there are people, and you can argue about its validity and why and how it happens. There are people who are charged who who are not convicted. Right, and the this. Civil Liberties Association, the head of the Canadian Association, did say that was another thing he'd like to see. That police rarely post a list afterwards saying, "Here's our list from last Christmas period or holiday check stop." And then here's how many of those were actually proven guilty in a court of law just to sort of match and have some accountability as to the charges versus the conviction. But I think the public shaming definitely can have an impact on people, maybe maybe even more so in a rural community. Mm. I just wonder if it would be more effective rather than publishing the names is to just have the check stops at random. I mean, outside of the holidays, do you ever see? I know that I have seen in the last decade, I've seen one check stop set up. Uh, it was in August. I was a little surprised to see it. I saw it. I was heading out uh, over on Lajemodier. I was going over Concordia, and I saw a bunch of police on the side of the road, and I thought, I wonder what they're doing there. And then when I came back, it was a check stop, and yeah. I thought, oh, my God. Yeah, they had one set up Saturday a few weeks ago outside uh, the police station on Pembina Highway. But I agree with you, Brett. Uh, as opposed to just doing it at the Christmas season, I think they need to do these things uh, without notice and over the entire calendar year. They do do it more than the holiday season, but I think your point is more about not to put words in your mouth, but just doing it randomly without everyone knowing that it's coming. Because you can make an assumption exactly during the holiday right. season that you're going to leave a party and that you're probably going to encounter or you could potentially and encounter. so think about that. So think about that. So your psychology is, I'm just not going to drink and drive for December? Like I. Well, think of all the extra plans that people make. In December, because of the check stop. Let's be honest about this. Sure. It's part of the conversation at the Christmas party is that the check stop is out. And so we, I think we, the more honest we are about what dictates our actions, the better opportunity we have to either change the way we deal with things and the way we drink and not drive and the systems in place. And the rules around it and how it's enforced. And you only have to, I think about all the weddings you go to and you leave and it's, you know, in a rural area. And you're like, if someone just had put a police car on this corner just once in the last five years, anybody ever going to this location would say, no, remember that time? Please put a check stop out here. Like, but they don't have the money for that. Where's the enforcement dollars coming? I don't know. We begin this segment, Loren McNabb, naming and shaming. Yeah, that's what they're calling it in Ontario this morning, but it's actually a practice that we've had in Winnipeg for a few years for sure. During the holiday season, the police, of course, do their annual check stop to stop anyone who might be uh, impaired while driving. Last year resulted in 38 different people getting charged. And then post that holiday check check stop, they then post the names and sort of put them out there for everybody to read. Well, now a police detachment in York, which is in the Toronto area, has decided they're going to do that as well, but they're going to do it year round. And so it has people from libertarian associations and, and privacy groups and all the rest saying, hang on, is this really naming and shaming? Is it a deterrent? And why are we doing it? So to discuss this more, we're bringing in Winnipeg privacy lawyer, Andrew Buck. Good morning, Andrew. Good morning. How are you? I'm good. Thank you. We're well. Is this something to be concerned about from your perspective when it comes to this type of practice from police agencies? Well, there's the the strict letter of the law answer, and then there's the more sort of ethical question. By the letter of the law, uh, our privacy laws say, look, the police uh, are subject to these laws. They can only disclose, so share our personal information, which would certainly be your name in association with a DUI charge. 
uh, in accordance with people's consent. Now, no one's going to consent to that. So then we look to the, the laws and see if there's an opportunity for them to disclose uh, according to a legal principle that says you don't need consent. And if you look in our privacy laws, they're allowed to disclose uh, without consent for law enforcement purposes or crime prevention. So presumably the, the, the idea of naming and shaming is done to try to deter crime, to try to keep people from getting behind the wheel when they shouldn't. And, and so I expect that uh, that might be one legal justification uh, that said, you get into the ethical concern, which is privacy laws are all about balancing. So on the one hand, you've got the very privacy invasive nature of, of naming someone uh, before they've had a chance to, to have their day in court versus what's the objective here? Um, what are we trying to accomplish by releasing, by naming and shaming? Is this the least privacy invasive way to do it? And, and does it actually work? Uh, so those are the sorts of questions that I think you would see a privacy advocate ask of the police uh, if you were putting this process under the microscope. Andrew, we often compare ourselves to the United States and the legal systems are so very different, especially in this case. You see uh, all the time you'll hear that a celebrity in particular has been charged with one inappropriate action or another. They've only been charged, not convicted, and plastered all over social media, television, newspapers will be that individual's mugshot. Sure. Yeah, you'll definitely see that. And and then one important distinction is at what point in the process has that happened? Because uh, certainly once you get far al- uh, along enough in the process in Canada, once that information gets sworn uh, in court, then it becomes public record. And uh, once it's public record, then the expectation of privacy is diminished. So with respect to these people uh, whose mugshots are, are plastered, one question that we always have is, well, at what point in the process was was that released? Uh, had they had their, their initial charges in court, was it something that anyone could go down and get on the court record? Because that certainly makes a difference. Uh, another thing that's really important to think about in these circumstances is, okay, so uh, you've got the police releasing it, and then you've got the second uh, layer of, of the media and others on social media, and that creates issues as well, not just privacy, but then also defamation. And are we defaming someone? Are we lowering their reputation in the, in the minds of a reasonable individual? And in Canada, it's interesting because what the courts typically will say is reporting the fact that someone's been convicted without any innuendo, without any uh, suggestions as to whether they've done it or not, or, or those sorts of things. Uh, that's generally okay because the public's presumed to know the person's innocent until proven guilty. So a few other uh, considerations to add uh, and layers to think about when we get into these issues. To be fair, Andrew, and we're talking about this in the context of impaired driving and the idea that police in the York region are saying they're going to do this year-round, post names of people charged with impaired driving. But we have numbers of charges. I'm thinking even just yesterday, a person arrested in the Selkirk school threats. The person was named and then has... And then gets published, but it seems to be that there's more concern about privacy when it comes to the impaired driving issue as opposed to all the other times that names are released and then published. Yeah, and, and I think one of the things that we think about when we see names being released is what's the objective of doing it and is there a public safety uh, objective in play? In other words, if someone is, is on the loose, so to speak, and it's important to get their name out there, that might be one thing. And, and perhaps people get concerned about uh, impaired driving because once the person's had their, their license suspended, uh, then it's really hard to argue that there's a, a need to put that person's name out there because clearly they've had their license suspended, they've, they've had their car impounded, they're not out there on the roads anymore. Um, and so that's probably another consideration that would be relevant when we think about that. 
A practical consideration, too, is uh, fair or not, I think a lot of people will will look at certain crimes and think that there's some sort of moral element attached to them, whether it's you know a violent crime, whether it's making a threat and and drunk driving, and and perhaps this is where society needs to change. People will say, well, hey, everyone makes mistakes. That could happen to everyone. You shouldn't have your your name dragged through the mud. And so, from a public perception standpoint, and I'm certainly not saying I agree with it, that might other be uh, another relevant factor to think about. In the final moment that we have left here, is there any evidence that this stuff even works as a deterrent to, to keep people from getting behind the wheel? That is a fantastic question. Uh, it deserves an answer, and I certainly think that anybody who wanted to challenge the practices of the police, whether that was by way of an ombudsman investigation, by way of a privacy complaint, uh, I think it would be incumbent on the people who are releasing the information, so in, in this case the police, uh, to provide evidence that that is the case. Uh, so I think it's an excellent question. I don't have the answer, but uh, certainly that's something we would want to see uh, released by the people who are doing this. Andrew Buck, privacy lawyer, joining us live on CJOB. Thank you very much for the time. You're most welcome. For the headline at globalnews.ca, snowball fights now legal in Colorado town after boys' quest. Greg found the story yesterday. We talked about it, how a nine-year-old boy has convinced the leaders of a small northern Colorado town to overturn a nearly century-old ban on snowball fights. And he already knows who his first target will be, his little brother. And that just got me thinking, what kind of fun would Winter have been as a child without the ability to throw a snowball, to get into some... Snow-related mischief. So that's what we're going to talk about here. We so rarely have actual snowball-making weather yeah. right. in this part of the world, it's right? It's very true. And you, when you get out there and you you know it's a snowball time, then it's go time. So why limit that? I mean, it's once. sometimes it's just once a year when it's just that sweet stuff where it sticks together. And well, when K-Tail's making stuff and selling stuff on TV to make this perfect snowball, you know you're on to something. We, yeah. So I was just came back from Banff this weekend with my family, and we specifically took a trip up to Mount Norquay because we all relived this thing we had 35 years ago, 30 years ago with my dad, where we stopped on a long drive out west, and we got out, and you're all tired and cranky, and we're the, between the ages of 6 and 11, and we started throwing snowballs at each other. And my dad just whipped one as hard as he could. My my younger brother had been sticking his stinky feet in our faces for the whole drive, and he was driving us crazy. So my dad just whipped the snowball at my brother. My one brother missed him, hit the six year old in the face, like just <laughs> smoked him. And then he, my little brother's trying not to cry, and he says, "My dad yeah. says, sorry, I was trying to hit the other jerk face over there." <laughs> and then my mom's like, "Bob, you can't say jerk face." And that was it. That was our family. Like, we can never forget. It was the funniest thing ever. And it was a great memory. Plus, we all got, like, leeway to call each other jerk face for the rest of the trip. So it was awesome. What kind, how hefty was this snowball? It was a big snowball. It was icier. It was, like, that time of year where they, it wasn't actually a perfect snowball day. So it was painful. Like, it, oh hurt, it hurt him. Okay. But it, the sting was taken away by that. We thought that was like a swear word. So we just all Christmas long. <laughs> hey, jerk face. Yeah, I, I could remember, you know, down in the Fraser Valley and even in Kamloops for that matter, where you would get the days where the, it would be uh, a heavy, wet snow. And that is perfect yeah. for making snowballs. Except when you're throwing them at the window Uh-oh. Uh-oh. to scare the kids who are looking at the window. <laughs> and the snowball was a little more powerful than you thought. <laughs> How old were you? 
Oh, I was uh, probably in my mid twenties. <laughs> <laughs> so you could afford to fix the window. Or, or, money I, to, I couldn't afford to, but I had to. So was it? Sorry, was it your family window yeah, or somebody was, else's? No, just... it was. It was the the, the two girls. <laughs> oh my god! What did your wife it say? wasn't the living room window though. I think it was like one of the kitchen windows or something. I, I'm trying to remember the exact details. Oh, it was not nice. <laughs> I was it, I was not called I was called more than a jerk face. Wow. Yeah, for for me that the, the it had nothing to do with snowballs, but there was a we had a snow adventure in grade six. Our teacher Monsieur Bilado, Paul Bilado, he decided that uh, he was going to give us a day because it was I think it had been a particularly cold winter, and we could tell we were all going stir crazy. So he said we're going to go take a day and and go into the courtyard at a cold region park and build Quincy's. Which is, it's kind of like an igloo, but it's, you're not like stacking cubes. You just build, sort of build up this massive pile of snow. You let it sit for a while and then you carve out the inside. So it's like this shelter. So we did that all day long. And there were, I think, four of them. We were broken off into teams. And then, of course, kids being kids, by the end of the day, somebody started some mischief, and suddenly one of the Quincy's started coming down. So all the teams started scattering across the courtyard to destroy the other Quincy's. <laughs> I climbed on top of one. I didn't mean for this. I just got into the fun and climbed on top of one, <laughs> fell through it, right, just completely destroyed it. So... At the end of that, the teacher, he's standing in front of the class, and he couldn't even speak. He was so angry. He's just, <laughs> guys, what are you doing? The whole day we were out there, and you just ruined it in 30 seconds. So, well, it's not like you guys were going to live in them afterwards. What did he want you to do with well, them? Well, the point, the fact that we spent this whole day doing a team-building exercise and building stuff, and then we just decided to destroy it in a moment of childish weakness. He was mad. But it's a great memory for me. It was yeah, fun. I think I still remember it as the Quincy coup d'etat. <laughs> That's great. I love it. The Quincy coup d'etat. I, I, owe, I owe someone a, an apology from grade six. Uh-oh. So, Billy Galloway, if you're listening, I'm I'm sorry about that ice ball. It wasn't a snowball. I threw at him in Brandon once upon a time, walking home from school. He was a good kid. I don't know what I was thinking. And I, by the time I got home, his mom had phoned my dad. Oh, boy. And I was in a little bit of trouble. Billy had a black eye because I was, uh, well, I was too good with the throw. Let's first of all be honest about that. Nolan Ryan Wait, sorry, here. we're just going to pause for a bit to brag Ugh. about how good <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> You could have been in more trouble than you thought because yeah. I believe at the time, I know when I lived in Brandon 20 years ago, there was a bylaw, much like this Colorado Come town, on. where it's illegal to throw a snowball. It, <laughs> I think I they have since overturned it, but at the time, that was definitely a law. Oh, I better go turn myself in then. <laughs> act like in the county lockup. What are you in for? Snowball. 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 I did the same thing to a kid and named bragging. Matthew Willis. <laughs> Yeah, I, I threw a nice ball at him, and it caught him. Uh, it ca- he knocked out one of his teeth. Oh, yeah, I did. That was so. I feel guilty. About My that friends too. and I were lucky that nothing happened. And for the love of God, do not try this at home. But we were the kids that would out, go out in the country and hide in the ditch and throw snowballs at cars on the highway oh. while they're going by. <laughs> <laughs> How successful were you? Not at all. It's so hard to hit a moving car when you're like a 12 year old boy. Well, you got to lead the target, right? You What's gotta, that? You got to lead the target. Yeah. yeah. I once connected with the mud ball at a car going down McMeans and Transco, and I threw it like 50 <laughs> yards ahead of where it was 
when it was beside me. But <laughs> nice. I went right through, right in the open window. I was proud. We ran really fast after that. <laughs> hey, Jeff, I bet Greg could have hit that car. <laughs> I guess. Hey, God. I think we have a challenge for this <laughs> afternoon. <laughs> Such a good snowball thrower. Check it out. Winnipeg Jets won on Long Island in Brooklyn last night, a 3-1 victory to sweep their three-game road trip in metropolitan New York. But some bigger news came out of the National Hockey League yesterday. That's right, 2021-22, the NHL will be a 32-team league following yesterday's announcement that Seattle will join the North American Ice Hockey League. Very well said. Well done. With, with an expansion fee of $650 million, Seattle will join the Pacific Division, which also means some divisional realignment. Arizona, currently in the Pacific, will join the Central Division. That's the division, of course, that the Jets play in, along with Minnesota, Colorado, Chicago, Nashville, St. Louis, and Dallas. That opens the door to another question and possibility. Will the Arizona Coyotes be the Houston Coyotes by the time this realignment takes place, a conversation for another day. But the biggest question for many is, of course, the team name. Before we bat that around, let's get some detail on the ownership group and where this team will play from Ian Furness. He is with KJR Radio in Seattle. He joined Julian Richard on the news and talks about the old Key Arena, which sits on the grounds of the Space Needle, north of downtown Seattle. That arena, the arena right now known as, as Key Arena, won't be what exists in three years' time. They're, they're, uh, they're going to demolish it. They keep basically the roof, but that's it. The rest of it's going to be gone. It'll be a brand-new building with uh, an existing roof that, for some unknown reason, is a landmark in Seattle. Uh, but... Uh, but they will, uh, they will, it's a brand new building. It, it'll be state of the art. It'll be everything you want, whistles and bells, good for hockey, great for hockey, and, and it'll be, it'll work out nicely. Ian, who's the ownership group behind this, the principal and some of the backers here, because there's a lot of money. Yeah, there is. David Bonderman uh, would be the primary majority owner, uh, an investment banker from, who actually went to school at the University of Washington in Seattle, uh, has worked all over the country, but. David Bonderman's the main money guy. Uh, Jerry Bruckheimer, Hollywood producer, Top Gun, and basically any movie or TV show you've seen, CSI series, etc. He's uh, he's the minority owner, the number two guy. Uh, there's others involved. Tim Lightwicky, formerly with uh, Maple Leaf Entertainment. Uh, his brother Todd is the CEO. Uh, Adrian Hanauer is a part uh, owner of the Sounders MLS team. Uh, there's there's roughly, I want to say, over a dozen people that have invested money of some sort, but David Bonnerman and Jerry Bruckheimer are the two main investors. Okay, so let's get down to what people care about generally, which uh, is a name. And I'm thinking, <laughs> what, the Seattle Baristas? Uh, I haven't heard. That's a new one. <laughs> hey, that's a good suggestion, though. Yeah, that's a new one. I don't know if that'll fly, uh, but yeah, there's... You know, the great thing for them is that they've got now an extra year to basically get people excited, do the whole name the team contest. I think they probably already know what it's going to be, but they'll go through that process. Uh, team colors, which they it really kind of feels like red will be involved in some way, shape, or form. So, you know, they're, they're going to go through that thing. They'll make it a big marketing campaign. That's what teams do. And, and Todd Lywicki is a genius in that regard, their CEO. And, and so uh, we'll – We'll have a lot of fun. People down here are partial to two or three names. 
the Metropolitans, which when you know the Stanley Cup way back when, uh, before the NHL was founded, uh, the Totems, which is an old Western Hockey League back when that was minor pro. Uh, that's got a lot of uh, the Kraken, which is some sort of sea monster. I don't know, might as well call it the Ogo Hogos or something. I guess. <laughs> I mean, it, so the name Mackling. I understand that there's a good chance that this team's going to be called the Metropolitans. That's that's one of the Why? that's one of the favorites. Well, they won as as uh, our guest uh, Ian Furness from KJR Radio in Seattle. So it reminded us they won the Stanley Cup back in 1917 or somewhere way back before when the NHL before the NHL existed when the Stanley Cup was kind of a challenge cup situation. I I hate that name i'll be honest with you You already have the new york mets which is terrible and there's name. a metro is there not a metropolitan division yeah there is you're yeah. right yeah so that would be kind yeah confusing but it just doesn't really roll off the tongue i get you could do mets but i don't like it okay so steelheads is one okay. that's also been batted around uh seattle skyline uh, their skyline's kind of great yeah a little bit they've got some nice buildings and of course mm-hmm. the speed uh, the space needle is quite identifiable Makes the logo easy you could just have like a gray blob with a cloud <laughs> And just, just be like depressing <laughs> as they slowly come on the ice like Eeyore. <laughs> I'm sad. <laughs> the cloud just following them around. Wow, are we ever generalizing about uh, Seattle uh, the way been. they I'm might sure be generalizing about us uh, sure on a regular lovely. basis? Seattle Snowcaps. And then you mentioned the current Western Hockey League team, Brett. The you, Thunderbirds. That's kind of a neat name, right? Uh, uh, Furness mentioned the, the Totems. As part of the Seattle Thunderbird logo is a totem pole. Yep. So that might be something uh, to consider. The Nighthawks, and then you get into the fun suggestions. Yeah. I like the fun. And ones. these are the ones that the fans really like to bat around. I'm fond of. I, I don't. I didn't realize Sasquatches was the plural of Sasquatch. I thought it was just Sasquatch was the like deer. I thought or moose. Okay. Right. <laughs> that it was really any more than one was still just Sasquatch. So it's not like Sasquai. <laughs> so that's what I guess because of the you know the, the Pacific Northwest right. there's roots there. Right. This next one I like. Release the Kraken. <laughs> the Seattle Kraken. That's the gigantic sea monster. Uh, the, this one for me I think has the most potential in terms of marketing, right? Because they can have they can develop a crazy logo that would be fun, particularly fun for kids. What's that thing you just played from? It's from Clash of the Titans. Right. Liam Neeson as Zeus. You play that every night. That's pretty fun. Come at, <laughs> Release the Kraken <laughs> and then the players come out with the cloud hanging over them. Yeah. yeah. Exactly. And, and that opens the door for a really lame pregame show like uh, they do in Las Vegas. Yeah, it's gonna be someone from the roof or like a weird uh, yeah. kind of mascot. So, But they could do it. I, I like the idea of that. And then there are a variety of other names uh, with uh, a varying degrees of kind of, uh, yeah, that's lame. Seattle Thunderwolves, the Grinders, the Neon Warriors. But I like one. this one. Yeah. I like this last one on the list a lot, at least the list that we have printed off here from CBSSports.com, the Seattle Grunge. That's yeah. a great name, and it honors that city's rich history and tradition in music. The the rock scene in the 1990s single-handedly was changed by one city, and that was Seattle, thanks to the likes of Nirvana and Soundgarden. 
Stone Temple Pilots, are they, where are they from? They were sort yeah, of emerged. They were that. emerged, yeah. They were a, a conglomeration of several groups, in, including members from, I think, Pearl Jam. Might have snuck their way into there. Well, think, pardon, well it looks like they were from San Diego, but they kind of caught on to into that. So think of the mascot. Thinking, oh, I'm thinking of Soundgarden. Temple of the Dog? Temple of the Dog, yeah, they were kind of like an all-star band too, yeah, right? Yeah, it was like Pearl Jam and San Diego. I was right. just thinking of the mascot if you go with the grunge. Like, forget what's his name in Philly. Gritty. Gritty. He'd, you could just go, I mean, you could really scare some children with, uh, <laughs> with grungy. Hair. Dave Grohl, maybe they could just use Dave Grohl as like the, <laughs> put a photo of him on the front of the, of the jersey and you're done. Boom. All solved. So we've been talking in recent days about a 27-hour hunger strike, Loren McNabb. Yeah, and it's now over for one Manitoban. Former Grand Chief Derek Nipanak went 27 hours without food or water. An hour for every year Nelson Mandela spent in prison fighting apartheid in South Africa. Derek Nipanak joins us on the phone this morning, and good morning to you. Oh, just one second. I'm just pulling him up here. I'm having problems with our phone. Derek, are you there? Yes, I am. Very good. Good morning, sir. How are you? I'm good, thank you. So after, uh, did you, my big question, this was inspired out of a trip to a Nelson Mandela exhibit at the Canadian Museum for Human Rights. So did you spend the night at the museum? Yeah, I spent, uh, I spent 27 hours in the, in the replica cell that the, the museum has as part of the Mandela exhibit. Did you sleep through the night or were you kept awake most of the night? I'm just sort of curious uh, how that would go. Yeah, it was uh, it was it was definitely very challenging. It's um, uh, in the in the cell itself. There's just a, a thin mat on the floor with a couple of blankets. Um, essentially, what Mandela had in his cell uh, is is replicated in that in that same space, and uh, you can't really sleep. Um, maybe maybe you know once you approach exhaustion, you might be able to sleep on that. But but I couldn't sleep on the mat at all. I. I uh, I must have got about 15 minutes of sleep throughout the night, so it wasn't very comfortable at all. So, of course, this is a replica of the cell that Nelson Mandela spent 27 years in, and I know several people personally who've been to Robben Island and call it one of the most powerful experiences of their lives. Uh, are you inspired to go there, Derek, or, or, or tell us some of the things that you contemplated in those 27 hours? You know, actually, when you walk into the Mandela exhibit at the museum, um, there's an immediate uh, energy that you pick up when you walk into that space. And the the, uh, the curators at the museum have done an amazing job at at, at creating that sense of, um, of 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 apartheid that that uh, you know consumed so many lives in South Africa during that time. And and I am inspired to go and 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 actually to see see it for myself, for my own eyes. Now that I've actually been you know, in the replica cell and spent the 27 hours there. It's a very powerful uh, experience, and uh, I recommend everybody to go to go check it out. So for those who haven't been to the Canadian Museum for Human Rights, because we've been talking recently about tourism in the city, and, well, the Museum for Human Rights is one of the draws to the city, but many Winnipeggers have not been to it and have no interest in going to it. So what would you say to that? Well, um, you know, people people choose to to do the things they they, they want to do, and some people won't go to the museum, and some people will. But I think that you know, for the for the purpose of recognizing um, you know the champions of human rights, 
and those people that have lived their entire lives, uh, you know, fighting apartheid and fighting colonialism and and challenging, you know, oppression. I think that uh, that the Mandela exhibit is worth it, even if you're not a fan of the museum. Uh, you can still be a fan of Mandela and um, and 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 learn from his uh, his life's lessons and Derek, teachings. Tell us a little bit about the parallels you drew when you first were in that replica cell of Nelson Mandela and why you sort of felt that it was a real connection there to Indigenous peoples of Canada? Well, I think that um, I've spent a lot of time pondering, you know, the, the, the connections. And, and I mentioned this earlier today that there, there are a lot of parallels that can be found in the, in the policy and the, the legal framework of, of early colonial uh, regimes, whether they be South Africa or Canada. Um, you know, just, just for example... Um, South Africans, black South Africans were called natives and they had to live on reserves and to leave the reserves for work or other purposes. They had to carry a passbook, which they had to produce, you know, to colonial authorities anytime they were asked. And it's very similar to our experience. Of course, we're confined, you know, for the most part, a lot of our people are confined through poverty to stay on the reserve. Um, historically, we had to get a permit to leave the reserve at times throughout history as well. So there's parallels in the early in the early days of the rise of colonialism, and uh, you know the uh, the segregation of of indigenous and non-indigenous people in 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 in, in what's now Canada, and that that segregation is still there. There's still a lot of uh, a lot of that happening today. Um, education uh, was uh, was separate education systems with with minimal actually opportunity for education being afforded to uh, you know black South Africans at the time, similar to our residential school systems here. Um, children being kept away from their families, which is what we're experiencing here as well. Um, there are many parallels to, to think about, and I, I've asked you know coming out of the fast, where is our mobilization as Indigenous people? I mean, I, I know that. Right now, we seem to have a good working relationship with Canada, but, uh, you know, um, things change and governments change and uh, we need to mobilize and we've got to address these issues uh, more effectively yet. To to understand what happened in South Africa, Trevor Noah's story about his parents' relationship is a fascinating one to look at. But I also look at South Africa because a big word there since the abolishment of an outlawing of apartheid has been reconciliation. And that's really the next step that we're working towards. How do you think we're doing on that front, Derek? I, uh, I think that, you know, when we look at the, the recommendations, I think we've made some, some marginal progress on, on some of them. Uh, I know that right here in Winnipeg, we, we have, uh, you know, nationwide leadership in, um, in bringing language revitalization back into the school system. You know, um, I, I think that uh, there, there's a long way to go in many areas, such as uh, reconciling differences out on the land in terms of resource development, uh, resource sharing, those types of questions remain uh, outstanding because there's still a vast disparity in, uh, in, 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 in economics. You know, there's still a lot of poverty in our communities. There's still a lot of people without homes and without safe drinking water. And that's where I think we have the greatest gains to make yet. Derek Nipanak, thank you very much for joining us this morning. We appreciate the time. Thank you so much for having me on the show. Take care. Former Grand Chief Derek Nipanak went 27 hours without food or water, an hour for every year Nelson Mandela spent in prison fighting apartheid. He was at the Canadian Museum for Human Rights. The Start On Demand is available on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, and anywhere you find your favourite podcasts.